Well, <clears throat> there is a very good basic rule for her hermeneutics. Do you remember now what the word hermeneutics means? You had it in your homework? It is the study of what? Interpret right, the study of interpreting scripture. There's a very good basic rule which was written by a man named Dr. David L. Cooper. He said that when the plain sense of the scripture makes common sense, then seek no other sense. And that statement is really the foundation for the futurist school of interpreting the book of Revelation and also for interpreting other eschatological prophecies in the scripture. Now, what does eschatological mean? Yes, very good. You did your homework. The study of end times, events, and circumstances. Now, the futurist method of interpreting Revelation is the only one of the four schools of interpretation which takes a literal approach to the words of Scripture. The idealist school, the preterist, and by the way, I pronounced it wrong all last week. It is not preterist, it's preterist. The preterist school and the historicist schools of interpretation, those first three that we looked at last week, they all find it necessary to change the original meanings of the words in the scripture in order to develop their theories, whatever their particular theory is. Remember, the idealist actually says that the entire book of Revelation is really just a big allegory that teaches us, essentially, that good, which is Christianity, wins over evil. And then the preterist states that everything found in the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled and that there is nothing prophetic about it, which means that they definitely must spiritualize away the literal meaning of most of the book in order to come up with that. For example, they must deny a literal understanding of the trumpet judgments, which uh, tell us that one-third of all the greenery on the face of the earth is going to be burned up. We find that in Revelation 8-7. And they must um, not take a literal understanding of another trumpet judgment, which tells us that one-third of the salt waters of the earth are going to be turned to blood, and that one-third of the sea creatures on the earth will die, all found in Revelation chapter 8 as they must also spiritualize away the Battle of Armageddon, which tells us involves the entire world in Revelation 16, verse 14. Uh, and this includes an army of 200 million men, which come from the east. And as we know, China now boasts of an army which consists of 200 million men. At the time John wrote that, that was outrageous. I mean, nobody, there weren't even that many people on the face of the earth. But now that's the size of China's army. Kind of a scary thought, isn't it? The historicist, who says that the events described in the book of Revelation have been continuously going on throughout the past 1900 years, throughout church history, also finds it necessary to explain away the literal meaning of much of the book of Revelation as such judgments are that are described in Revelation have never occurred in history past. There has never been a time when one-third of the sea creatures have died since the church, church started, you know, in church history. Of course, we know at the flood that that happened. So nothing to that magnitude and intensity has ever happened in the time of the church. So again, they find it necessary to spiritualize away a lot of revelation and not take it literally. And as we discussed last week, they also find it necessary to alter the mention of Israel in eschatological prophecy because they believe that God is finished with Israel and that the promises he originally made to her are now void and that they will be fulfilled instead with the church or to the church. And this includes, for example... Uh, his promise made through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, verse 8 and verse 10, God said this with regard to Israel. This is a quote from God. He said, Behold, I will bring them, meaning Israel, from the north country. Do you know what country is directly north of Israel? Russia. Do you know that in the last several years, there have been over 800,000 Jews 
who have come down to live in Israel from Russia. And God said this back in the days of Jeremiah, about 600 years B.C., that he would bring them from the north country and gather them from the coasts of the earth. And I will... Uh, I lost my place here. I will bring them with the blind and the lame, the woman with her child and her that travaileth with child together. A great company, he says, shall return thither, meaning to the land. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattereth Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Now, do you think that God meant what he said there? Of course he did. This is not a promise which is now to be made with the church. It really wouldn't make much sense. He doesn't want the church gathered into one little nation. He wants the church spread throughout the world to get his word out. Well, of course God meant what he said. He always means what he says. And to, I think to prove that he meant what he said, he is even right now we see before our very eyes, eyes the miracle of Israel's regathering from the four corners of the earth. In fact, Israel's government even has a special cabinet member who is in charge of nothing else but collecting the Jews who are returning to the land from around the world. And his title is the Minister of Absorption. And I think they've even had to put a, um, a limit on how many that they allow into the country every year. But we haven't seen anything yet. At the end, he will really gather everybody, all the Jews back there. Well, God means what he says. And we must remember, too, that God hates divorce. And you say, what in the world has that got to do with what you're talking about? God hates divorce. He says that in Malachi 2.16. In the Old Testament, you know, Israel is pictured as the wife of Jehovah God. Just as in the New Testament, the church is pictured as the bride of Christ. See, the Old Testament, isn't that nice? Old Testament, Israel is the wife of Jehovah. New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. Now, the entire book of Hosea, if you've never read it, you should read it. You know, there are types, there are pictures of things in the Old Testament that give us a picture of something in the New Testament. Well, the whole book of, Isaac, of Hosea is a type. It is the true story of the prophet Hosea and his wife, Gomer. I can't imagine a mother naming her little girl Gomer. I mean, we think of Gomer Pyle, but that was her name. <laughs> and anyway, this whole book, which is a true story, is intended to give us a picture it's a prophetic picture, a type of the relationship between Jehovah God and his wife Israel. Now, Gomer was unfaithful to Hosea, just as Israel has been unfaithful to God. Yet, Hosea was commanded, he was instructed by God to love her in spite of her adultery. She, she ran out. On him, And, you know, she had many lovers, just as Israel had many lovers, you know, with the false gods around her. But Hosea was instructed to love her in spite of her sin and to restore her, in, you know, in spite of her adultery and never to put her away, never to divorce her. Now, even though Israel is still playing the harlot, yet today, God continues to love her. And, you know, Gomer was separated from Hosea for a while. Uh, he had to buy her back. As a matter of fact, they think she might have been even uh, like a slave, a, a prostitute in the temple. Well, Israel has been separated from God for a while, but she has not been divorced. He has not put her away. And he continues to love her just like Hosea continued to love Gomer. You know, God would never, ever have done something that he tells us he hates. He would never have divorced Israel and replaced her with the church. You know, that's sin. He would not have done that. But yet that is exactly what historicists teach us God did. But that would make God commit divorce. That would make God, you know, sin. 
and then have an adulterous marriage instead with his son's bride, the church. So do you see what I'm saying? This, to me, proves that the historicist view is wrong. One should never confuse Israel with the church. Because you see, the church, I don't know if you can see what that is. There's a, a woman in there. That's the bride. That's at the rapture. All the Christians are going up, but the artist made it into a picture of a bride. I thought that was kind of interesting. The church is a chaste virgin. She's not a harlot. She is a chaste virgin to present, be presented to Christ, sanctified, without spot or blemish, clean and pure. She cannot be Israel. She cannot be even spiritual Israel because Israel is still an adulterous wife committing spiritual adultery against God. And she will not be restored until the end of the tribulation, which is a time of necessity in order to purify her and in order to bring her back to her proper relationship to God. So read the story of Hosea sometime. It's really a picture of God's love for the nation of Israel. And he will, yes, he will restore her one day to himself. Inconsistency and confusion and disunity. I told the ladies in the night Bible study at the end of last week's lesson, I said, look, because they all had sort of puzzled looks on their face. I said, if you are confused, the reason you are confused is because I have been giving you interpretations which are wrong. And whenever something is incorrect, it's going to be confusing. So confusion and disunity and inconsistency will always result from a method of interpretation which does not take God's word literally. The futuristic school of interpretation is the only school of the four which takes the literal approach. The futuristic school is the one that of course, I believe in, that I adhere to, the one that we will be using this year. And this is the one we will be looking at this morning. Futurists believe that although the book of Revelation was used of God to speak to and to comfort the persecuted Christians of the first and second centuries of the church age, even though it was used, yet they believe that chapters 4 to 22 contain prophecies which are even to this day, 1900 years later, yet to be fulfilled. They still remain unfulfilled. That's what a futurist believes. All scripture was given by inspiration of God and is profitable for all believers of all ages. Therefore, a futurist does believe that the book was a comfort and did teach doctrine to the Christians of the first two centuries as well as to Christians of all centuries. But they also say that most of the book, even now, 1,900 years later, is still unfulfilled, has not yet been fulfilled. The futurist sees a literal seven-year tribulation period, which will immediately be followed by the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ here on planet Earth. And this, they say, will be followed by the final judgment and then by the eternal state which will be in the new heaven and in the new earth. So the futurist sees that most of the book of Revelation is still future even from where we are today. In fact, even most of chapters 2 and 3 which give us the letters to the seven churches, even most of those two chapters were future when they were originally given to the Apostle John because he was at the very beginning of the church age, he was like in the um, Ephesus stage of the church. So most of the chapters two and three were future when he saw when he was given this revelation. Uh, Dr. John Phillips, who we had here one time years ago, he actually came and taught us a lesson. He um, is living today. He's a wonderful Bible expositor and a and a preacher from England. He studied under Stephen. Uh, Alford, but, um, he has written a series of commentaries on the Bible. One in particular I'm using this year is called Exploring Revelation, if you want to buy it at the Christian bookstore. Dr. John Phillips, Exploring Revelation, is a very good study. He said that those who get confused about the book of Revelation 
and what this symbol means and what that symbol means, they do so because they forget that God is his own interpreter. You know, it tells us in Genesis 40, verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. That's what that verse says. Furthermore, Dr. Phillips reminds us that many of the symbols that are found in Revelation are already explained by God. <clears throat> For example, the lampstands, we are specifically told, represent the local churches. We are told that horns represent kings. We are told that waters represent people and that frogs represent evil spirits. You know, so there doesn't have to be any guessing about it. God tells us in many of the cases. <clears throat> and then when the symbols are not explained in the immediate context in the book, uh, in the book of Revelation, we find that they are in many cases explained somewhere else in that same book. They are explained somewhere else in the book of Revelation. Or perhaps they are explained to us somewhere else in another book in the Bible. The fact is then that the scripture interprets its own symbols and it leaves no room for the imaginations of men to devise, you know, to come up with his own explanations, which is what these other fellows have done, the idealists and the preterists and the historicists. So futurists not only believe that the prophecies of Revelation and other eschatological prophecies of the scripture are to be taken literally, but they also believe that the scripture is to be used to interpret the scripture. So the futurist believes that the judgments of God are actually to be poured out upon this earth in a literal seven-year period of time, which is what the scripture tells us. And if you don't understand seven years, it tells us how many months and it tells us how many days. I mean, make sure that we really know seven years. And, we, and futurists also believe that um, these judgments will cause the devastation to the magnitude which is described. For example, one-third of the earth or one-fourth of the earth or whatever it is. A total, I think, at the end of one-half of the population is uh, destroyed. They do believe that chapter 13 of the book is a prophecy of the future world empire with both its political and religious rulers being represented by the two beasts in that chapter. Both of them are energized by Satan. One of them is actually possessed by Satan, he being the Antichrist. And so they believe in the literal satanic trinity, which we will find, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And then they also believe that chapter 17's harlot represents, and this is a beautiful picture of her, <laughs> they do believe that she represents the final form of the apostate church. So the futurist view um, has seemed to gain a hold on a large segment of those who consider themselves conservative evangelicals. So most conservative evangelicals do hold to the futuristic interpretation. That's why if you turn on Bible Broadcasting Network, BBN, you will hear Dr. David Jeremiah and some of the others who are teaching Revelation right now, you will hear them teaching the futuristic view, which is what you will hear me teaching this year. Now, this is largely because the other methods of interpretation have led to much confusion. This is why conservative evangelicals have disregarded the other ones. There's been too much confusion, and they have tended to make the book of Revelation seem like a hopeless, exegetical problem. That's why I explained to you, if you go to a church where there is a historicist in the pulpit, or an idealist, or a preterist, you will probably not hear them teach on the book of Revelation. If they do, they will probably make it very succinct and tell you in one day that good wins in the end, or that all of the book is in the past. It's already been, you know, fulfilled. The futuristic view is rejected by almost all amillennialists and postmillennialists. I won't re-explain to you what they are. If you don't know, read your homework from last week or read your notes from last week. But it is normally the view which is accepted by premillennialists. And a premillennialist is one who believes that Jesus Christ will return before, pre, before the 1,000-year kingdom. And this is because they believe that he is the one who establishes that kingdom. 
It isn't because the world gets so good that we go right on into it without him. Mm-mm. He's the one who has to come straighten all us out and set it up. And they believe that he literally sits on the throne of David, therefore fulfilling God's covenant promise to King David. And um, therefore, their, their view, or I should say our view, because I am one, I am a premillennialist, they believe that the sequence which is described in the book of Revelation, which tells about Jesus returning to the earth in chapter 19 and then reigning for 1,000 years in chapter 20, is to be taken literally. That first he returns in chapter 19, then he sets up his kingdom in chapter 20. So if you take the Bible literally, you don't really have a lot of confusion and inconsistency. Premillennialists all agree on this. This is what the Bible says, and that's what the Bible means. Now, to be fair, I will tell you that there are a couple negatives about this view. For one thing, futurists do tend to be overly dogmatic about some of their uh, statements. They are, you know what dogmatic means? They mean, you know, assertive. This is the way it is, and that's it. Don't argue with me. So they do tend to be rather dogmatic about some of the interpretations um, in Revelation. And since the events past chapter 4 have not yet occurred, we really should not be overly dogmatic. We shouldn't be very, very assertive and say, absolutely, this is how this is going to be fulfilled. And the reason for that is because these events and these circumstances haven't been fulfilled yet. They have not been carried out. And only we should be dogmatic when they are definitely spelled out in the Scripture. So we will be teaching many times saying, well, this may be the way it will happen. You know, so watch me if I get too dogmatic about something that isn't spelled out. If it is spelled out, I can be dogmatic. So that's one problem that they have. Another one is that there is, and you probably know this, there is a great deal of division among futurists with regard to the timing of the rapture of the church in relationship to the tribulation. Not that they're divided about a rapture. They believe that there will be a catching away of the saints, you know, without dying, and those in the graves will ascend first. They all agree on that. But what they disagree about is the timing. Now, some say that it occurs before the seven years of tribulation, that the church does not need to go through the tribulation. And they are called pre-tribulationists. See, they're pre-millennialists and they're pre-tribulationists. I know this really gets confusing. Well, some say that the rapture occurs in the middle of the tribulation, so what do you think they're called? Mid-tribulationists. That's easy. A lot of people just say mid-trib, so that's a shortcut. Pre-trib, mid-trib. Then there are um, some that say it is a pre-wrath rapture, and that's sort of a five-sixths of the way through the um, tribulation period. There are some that believe in a partial rapture theory, that only the really, really good Christians are raptured first, and then later on some of the other ones are raptured. That's called a partial rapture theory. And then, of course, there are some who say that the rapture does not occur until the end of the tribulation, and they are called post-trib, post-tribulationists. And I am not going to get into this right now because this is a very, very detailed study, and we will take a look at it later on in this year, okay? We will. We have to. And then I'll tell you what I am. But you probably already know. All right. However, the reason for this difference is not really any fault of the futuristic view of interpreting the Scripture. The problem arises with other issues, but primarily the problem in their division arises from the fact that the Bible does not precisely say this is when the rapture occurs. And that would make it very easy for all of us. But then that would take that away that blessed hope that keeps us, you know, being pure as we wait and never really know. So that's really why there is division, because the Bible doesn't spell it out exactly. I think personally that there are many, many, many clues and scriptures which do really tell us if we're willing to dig and study. So I am convinced about my view, but we'll get into that later on. This was a mystery which was never known in the Old Testament by the Old Testament authors, and it was not even understood by the church until the writing 
of the New Testament epistles. So those are the two negatives. Now the positives about the futuristic view are far more than the negatives. Um, first of all, it gives us a very reasonable and a very methodical and a very logical and a very simple approach to the scriptures. The literal meanings of words and the literal meanings of sentences is, you know, after all, the normal approach that men take in using language, right? I mean, when I talk, you take me literally, unless you know I'm speaking in a parable or something like that. But otherwise, that's the common approach that men take when they speak. And secondly, the Bible, uh, the greater part of the Bible, does make adequate sense when it is interpreted literally. Thirdly, the futuristic or literalistic approach does not blindly uh, rule out figures of speech. It doesn't just say, you know, well, all symbols have to be taken literally, so when it says frogs, it is definitely frogs. Well, we are not that stupid. I mean, we know that the frogs are speaking about evil spirits and that the waters talk about many peoples. I mean, you know, like I told you, when the symbols are right there and God tells us what they represent, we don't rule out the fact that Jesus um, spoke in parables. I mean, we know that there are figures of speech which should be taken allegorically when the context of the Scripture, you know, tells us that this is the way it should be, that these are allegorical or that it is a type. You know, I talk all the time about types of Christ. Like I just told you, Hosea and Gomer was a true story. It literally happened, but yet is a picture also to tell us about God and his relationship to Israel. So it doesn't just blindly rule out all figures of speech. Um, fourthly, this method of interpretation is really the only safe check that we have on the imaginations of men. It exercises a control over interpretation, and it offers the only reliable check on the constant threat that there is to remove the authority of the Scripture. And it does it by putting the real authority on the Scripture itself and not on the interpreter. And it puts it, uh, it grounds interpretation on fact in other words, instead of on someone's imagination. So this is the, the only interpretation that really puts a safe check on man's imaginations just running wild with them. That's why you will read some really far-out books on Revelation if you get hold especially of an idealist interpretation. Now, another reason to hold to the futurist method of interpreting Revelation is that none of the events which took place or which take place in the book after chapter 3 have ever yet happened in history, as the preterist would tell us and as the historicist would tell us. You know, just the immensity and the worldwide proportions to which those destructions occur should convince us that nothing like this has ever happened on planet Earth. Even during the two world wars that we had earlier in this century, we didn't have destruction to this proportion. I mean, one half of the world's population did not perish. So another positive for the futurist view is that these things have not been fulfilled, as the preterists and the historicists would tell us. Another one, another positive is that Chapter 1, and here you might want to open your Bibles to chapter 1, verse 19. This is the key verse for understanding the book of Revelation. We'll be looking at it several times this morning. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. John is told by the Lord Jesus Christ to, first of all, write the things which he had seen. Secondly, to write the things which are and thirdly, to write the things which shall be hereafter. Now, this is the key. You might even want to, if you write in your Bible, you might want to circle this verse. It's the key for unlocking the secret for interpreting the book of Revelation. When John received this commandment, he had already seen something. Do you know what he had seen? Well, if you read chapter 1, you'll know that he saw the vision of the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ. So that is the first part of that verse. Those were the things which thou hast seen. So he wrote down in chapter 1 what he had seen. All right, then in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, he was told to write seven letters to seven churches. 
And those seven churches existed at the time of John in the first century. Now that is the things which are, present tense. That was the second part of that verse. And then, beginning in chapter 4 of the book, John is told by Christ to come up hither. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, Christ says, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must take place when? After these things. Now what does the after these things speak of? It speaks of the churches of chapters 2 and 3. And the churches of chapters 2 and 3 give us a panoramic picture of the entire church age. They give us a history of the church. It's amazing. It's incredible. I can't wait till we get to those chapters. It's fantastic. But only Jesus Christ would know the stages the church would go through for the next 2,000 years. And that's how, what he gave to John. So chapter 4 begins after the church age. And this ties in perfectly with the Lord's third phase of that key verse, 119, where he told John, and write the things which shall be hereafter. Now, because you and I are still living in the church age, I believe we're living in the seventh stage, the Laodicean stage, the apostate stage of the church, but we are still living in it, aren't we? Yes. That means that the events of chapter 4, all the way to the end of the book, chapter 22, are yet future. The key verse, then, of Revelation supports the futuristic interpretation of the book. So this is another positive. Well, I guess that tells you that we will be using the method of the futurists. This will be the method for uh, our whole study of Revelation. I believe with all my heart that it is the one that is the most biblical. And this is the method we will be using. Now, the next thing we want to consider is something about the overall picture or pattern of the book of Revelation. Another very important rule of hermeneutics, which is the study of interpretation, is that we should generally survey an entire book, you know, just kind of get the whole picture of the book before we then get into the specifics, you know, going verse by verse. In other words, we need to see the big picture before we get into the parts. So what I want to do at this point is to give you a big picture of the book of Revelation. And first of all, to do that, I'm going to give you our general outline. You'll see it up here, and of course, it's also in your notes. Now, the general outline for our study of Revelation is based upon the three-point outline, which was given by God to Christ, to an angel, to John, to give to us. So this isn't anything original. It's the outline that was really given by Almighty God. And it comes from that key verse, uh, Revelation 1.19, which contains the command of Christ to John to write the things which thou hast seen. That is what we will look at in chapter 1, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he was told to write the things which are. And that's what we'll look at in chapters 2 and 3 as we look at not the person, but the possession of Jesus Christ. What is his precious possession? The church. And that's what we'll consider as we look at the things which are. And then thirdly, and this of course is the longest section of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 all the way to chapter 22, we will look at the things which shall be hereafter. And this is the program of Jesus Christ. And under that section, we will look at three main divisions. We'll look at the tribulation period, which is a seven-year period. Then we'll look at the um, millennial kingdom, which is a thousand-year period. And then we will consider the eternal state. And how long is that? It's eternal. <laughs> and then you can see under the tribulation, I won't get it. You can just read that, what we will be looking at under the tribulation um, period of seven years. Now, the vast majority of the difficulties and the confusion which arises in an interpretation of Revelation occur in the third main section of this book, 
I mean, the first is pretty clear, the person of Christ and his description. The second is pretty clear, the seven letters to the seven churches. Most of the confusion occurs under part three, the program of Jesus Christ, and in particular, the contents of chapters four to 19, where we will look at the tribulation period, you know, with all the judgments. So in order to facilitate our study, and to, um, I believe in preventative medicine, in order to prevent a lot of confusion, we do need to understand, and this is what we'll do for the rest of the morning, just look at two basic patterns of movement which occur throughout the book. Because if we understand these two movements, things will be a lot more clear for us when we get into that third division of the book. Now the first of these two movements is what we will call the up and down movement. Now, I don't know if you can read that, but if you can't, it will be, it is on the um, homework page. You'll see it on the very end, at the very end of your notes when you receive your notes, so you can study it more at home. I think you can sort of read it. Anyway, this is the up and down movement, and what I mean by that is that as you read through the book of Revelation, you're going to soon realize that there is a lot of movement going on between scenes in heaven and scenes on earth. So we're going back and forth all the time. A scene in heaven will soon be followed by a scene on earth. And then following that scene on earth, whoop, back up we go and we watch and see what's going on in heaven. And so this is why I call it the up and down movement. For example, chapters two and three, where are we? Well, we're looking at the seven churches, so we're down on earth. And then, first thing, the Lord Jesus says to John in chapter 4, verse 1, is come up hither. So where are we in chapters 4 and 5? We're up in heaven. And we are taking a look at the Lord Jesus Christ stepping into the glorious spotlight of eternity to receive what is rightfully his, not only rightfully his by way of creation, but rightfully his by way of redemption. And that is the title deed to this earth. Oh, it's a wonderful scene when we look at that as he receives the title deed to this earth, which, by the way, has been temporarily stolen by a usurper named Satan, currently the prince of this earth. But he doesn't have the right to the title deed to this earth. The Lord does. Okay, then after chapters 5 and 6, I mean uh, 4 and 5, in chapter 6 through um, chapter 7, we are back down on earth again. Or the, uh, excuse me, the 8th verse of chapter 7. We're back down on earth, and we're watching the destruction which takes place during the seal judgments. First of all, we have seven seal judgments, then seven trumpet judgments, and then seven bowl or vile judgments. So in chapter um, 6 and part of 7, we're watching as all the destruction from the seal judgments takes place on earth. And then we're also watching the witness of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And then from chapter 7, verse 9, to chapter 8, verse 6, back up to heaven we go. Now, if you didn't know about this up and down movement, you would get awfully confused. You'd say, what in the world? But there's a distinction between what we're watching. In these verses, now we're in heaven, and we're observing the great multitude of tribulation saints those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ during the tribulation period, they are saved, but most of them are martyred for their faith by the Antichrist. And so we see them standing before the throne of the Lamb, and they are praising him. That's a scene in heaven. And then there is that eerie silence in heaven. It says for a space of 30 minutes. Heaven has never been silent before, but now for 30 minutes, heaven is silent. My husband told me that's, that must, that proves that there are no women in heaven. I did not appreciate that. <laughs> but anyway, then after that eerie 30 minutes of silence, um, then we're back down to earth to observe what goes on down here as the first of the, the first six of the seven trumpet judgments are released. And I won't go through the entire book, but this is what happens. There's a continual up and down movement, which goes on all the way through the book. I mean, even at the end, we're in the millennial kingdom, seeing what happens on earth, and then we go into the eternal state. 
in the new heaven and the new earth. So all the way through the book, up and down and up and down we go. Now, what this alternating pattern demonstrates to us, in a sense, we could say, is the answer to the prayer which believers were told to pray. It was a pattern for prayer. Um, that we were encouraged to pray by the Lord Jesus himself. And that prayer was in Matthew 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 10, where it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on where? Earth, as it is in heaven. See, Revelation tells us of God's will being decreed and declared where? In heaven, and then carried out, fulfilled on earth. So really we could say that this is an answer to that prayer that we have been praying for some 2,000 years. Well, that's the up and down movement. That's one pattern in the book. Now there is another pattern which we could call the back and forth. So this isn't hard, is it? This is a whole lot easier than premillennial, pre-tribulation, is eschatology and hermeneutics. Just up and down and back and forth. Now this back and forth movement has to do with the chronologic, and I don't have a picture for this, so just keep looking at that, I guess. Um, it has to do with the chronological sequence of the events which are described in the book. We need to understand that many of the passages in Revelation are parenthetical. And what I mean by that is that we repeatedly find that the chronology of the book is going to be deliberately interrupted in order uh, to give us additional information you know, supply us with some additional details about something that perhaps has already been discussed or to give us some brand new information about a topic that maybe hasn't even been introduced yet. So to help you understand this better, I want to give you a little illustration of how this works. For example, uh, my mom, when we were growing up in Chicago, she loved the Chicago Cubs. So that's why I'm using this illustration. Not that I'm a sports fan, but I certainly grew up listening to Cubs ball games on the radio. If a sports newscaster, and they never won, by the way, and she was still one of their greatest fans. If a sports newscaster is radio broadcasting a baseball game, he will describe the game as it progresses. And he will do so in chronological order as the game you know, goes from inning to inning first inning, second inning, third, all the way through the ninth inning. However, while there are breaks in the action, such as maybe when the teams are switching from the infield to the outfield, he may use that time in order to describe something additional, which he saw take place during one of the innings, which is already finished, an earlier inning. Or, you know, a lot of times he would bring one of the players up into his uh, little studio there and put them in front of the microphone and interview him about something which maybe happened earlier in the game. Or he might give some interesting statistics about one of the players or one of the teams. And then when the teams are back in place and they're ready to begin playing ball again, he returns to announcing the game in sequential order, you know, play after play. And this is essentially how the action of the book of Revelation works. Oftentimes the sequence of the events which are being described by John are interrupted by one of these parentheses of additional information. And most of these parenthetical sections are going to occur during the action of the trumpet judgments at the time when the Antichrist takes over. He's in power. They are added, for example, one of these parentheses are added to tell us how it will be that the Antichrist will be able to take over control of this world in such a short period of time. And they will tell us what will occur on earth once he is in control. So that's the back and forth movement. You know, most of the book is chronological, but every once in a while we'll stop and maybe a whole chapter will just sort of tell us a little additional information about something that is already going on or some brand new information that we just had not been told about yet. Now, 
So that's up and down and the back and forth. Now, another matter to discuss with regard to the book of Revelation is its writing style. And I've sort of already mentioned this once in one of the other lessons. But the book of Revelation, you know, is prophetic in character, but it is apocalyptic in its writing style. It is what is known as apocalyptic literature. And that is a particular type of literature which was used in the days of the New and the Old Testaments. It basically communicated its message by way of a lot of symbolism, and it was generally the way to communicate a message of impending judgment. Now, there are five main features to apocalyptic literature. One, it is primary, primarily eschatological. In other words, it primarily has to do with end times events, those things that will happen in the latter days. Secondly, it was generally written, or apocalyptic literature was generally, generally written during times of persecution. Thirdly, they often contain visions. Uh, fourthly, symbols abounds with symbolism. And fifth, its message is usually one of impending judgment. Those are in your notes, and that's one of your homework questions. So isn't that easy? There they are, five things. You just have to write them right out. Now, the book of Revelation is the only apocalyptic book in the New Testament, the only one. But there are some very important apocalyptic books found in the Old Testament, both Daniel and Ezekiel are apocalyptic books, or they have at least large sections in them which are apocalyptic. Isaiah chapters 24 to 27 use apocalyptic literature. Um, chapters 65 and 66 are also apocalyptic in style, as is Zechariah, the book of Zechariah, chapters 9 to 14, and Joel chapters 2 and 28 to 32. So those are the apocalyptic sections of the scripture. Now we might ask, why would the Holy Spirit have inspired the Apostle John to write Revelation in apocalyptic style? I mean, none of the books since, you know, back Zechariah had been written apocalyptically. They were basically all Old Testament. All the New Testament was written in the normal style. So why did the Holy Spirit have John write the very last book of the Bible apocalyptically, if that's a word? Well, for one thing, probably because it was the type of literature which was used to communicate a message of judgment, and that is what John was inspired to write, was a message of judgment. Also, it was probably used because... Um, or in order to avoid the harsh um, reaction of the Roman Empire. John was living during the reign of Domitian, Emperor Domitian, and he was a very cruel emperor. I'll talk more about him in just a second, but first of all, let me tell you that the message, the very clear message of Revelation is that Rome and all the world empires were eventually to fall before the divine forces of Almighty God. You know, when Jesus Christ comes back, all the world empires are going to um, fall and be judged by him. That was the clear message of the book. And that message would not have been very kindly received by the Roman Empire, would it? Domitian reigned from 81 to 96 AD. They say that the book of Revelation was written either in 95 or 96 AD, and that John was released shortly after this when Domitian died. But Emperor Domitian was the first emperor to really understand that behind that this new movement called Christianity, there was a figure who threatened the glory of the emperors. And who was that figure? Christ himself. So he was the first Roman emperor who applied to himself all the attributes of godhood and established a form of emperor worship, which was purposely anti-Christian. You know, Nero had had Paul and Peter both killed, but Domitian was the first Roman emperor to openly declare war on all of Christ's followers. So John's message to the church from the Lord Jesus was veiled purposely 
in symbolic language so that only believers and only students of the word would understand it. This use of apocalyptic apocalyptic literature, of course, was not John's idea, although he might have thought it was his idea. It was really the Holy Spirit's uh, idea. He was the one who inspired John to use it. And this um, is what it, exactly what is told to us in verse 1 of chapter 1, where it says that Jesus Christ um, the whole, and the Holy Spirit were the ones who sent and signified it. See the word signified it? By his angel unto his servant John. That word signified in Revelation 1.1 literally means to give a sign. You see, Jesus Christ purposely signified it, signified it. He gave the message of revelation by way of signs and symbols so as to protect the Christians. Because if the Romans got hold of this, they would really be angry and kill off all the Christians. So it was the Lord Jesus who told his angel messenger to give John the revelation of and about himself and his future plans in signs or in symbols. And one reason for this, as I just mentioned, was in order to help to veil the message from the Romans. Also, however, the Lord may have or probably did choose this method of apocalyptic literature because a sign or a symbol can actually be a more accurate type of language at least over a long-term period of time. If you think about it, words over a period of time, and see this was given 2,000 years ago, words often tend to change their meaning. For example, when the King James Version of the Bible was written in 1611, the word prevent, prevent meant to... Uh, um, to come before. It doesn't mean that today. Today it has come to mean to hinder or to stand in the way. I prevent you, you know, from coming up here or something like that. That's what prevent means to us. And that makes a real big difference when you're reading a passage such as 1 Thessalonians 4.15, which says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Now that's the King James Version. And when that verse was written originally by the Apostle Paul, or when it was translated actually in 1611, it meant that believers who are alive at the time of the Lord's return in the rapture will not come before those who are already dead, those who have already died. In other words, it meant that the dead in Christ shall rise first, just the way we teach it today. That's what it meant. However, the reading of those words today, let's say by someone who doesn't know the doctrine of the rapture and just picked up the Bible and was reading it, it would, it would almost sound as though those who are living when Christ comes are going to actually try to prevent <laughs> or hinder the dead in Christ from rising before them. I mean, could you imagine that, you know, we who are alive trying to keep them down there in their graves? But that's how it sounds, you know, according to the way we understand the word prevent. So words do change with time, but symbols and signs have fixed meanings, and they don't change over the centuries. Ideas, for example, which are associated with the sun and the moon and the stars and the clouds and animal horns and beasts and water and mountains and hills and things like that, they do not change with the passing of time. Now, since Revelation is a book which primarily deals with events or, you know, which are in the far distant future, they may not be now, but they certainly were when they were given, symbols offered a more fixed form of communication for future generations of Christians and also for the Jews who will be living during the time of the tribulation. And also, symbols, not only are they more fixed for long periods of time, but also they are understood by peoples all around the world. They're kind of an international language. You can go anywhere in the world, and if you see a lit cigarette with a red circle and a diagonal line through it, what does that mean to you? No smoking. 
if you go anywhere in the world and you see on the on the um, roads a picture of a deer running, you know it means it's a deer crossing. Be, beware. You know, there'll be an animal running. Or if you see a silhouette of children, you know there's probably a, a school there or, a, you know, children's uh, where children cross the road. So signs are international, and that, of course, is why um, deaf people, you know, they don't have to learn different languages. There's an international sign language that anybody, doesn't matter where they're from, they can talk to each other in their sign language. So symbols are, in that sense, they are beneficial, especially for giving, um, you know, future events way before they actually happen and also for hiding from the Romans what they were actually saying. Now, how would it be that Christians of future generations, such as you and I, how would we be able to understand the symbolism of the book of Revelation? Well, we sort of already talked about this, but one way would be by knowing and understanding the Old Testament, and that's why a study of the book of Daniel is so um, critical for Revelation. And if you haven't studied it, we have the tapes. Maybe you can quick do it before we get to the tribulation period. But if you haven't, we'll go back and forth quite a bit, I'm sure, in our study and talk about things in Daniel. But we can understand a lot of the symbolism in Revelation by understanding and knowing the Old Testament. Secondly, some of the symbols of Revelation are explained by the life and the culture of the first century in which it was written. And so we will, ha- in some cases, we will have to understand um, the historical setting in which these things took place. For example, uh, the seals which are to be broken. I have a picture of that. On the scroll of chapter 5, it will be important for un- us to understand, you know, what they used seals for, what they how they looked and what their purpose was and everything like that so that we then understand the interpretation of that particular symbol the symbols of the seals right so and then in some cases the symbols are actually interpreted for us as we said earlier right there in the context for example, in Revelation 120 it tells us that the seven candlesticks which John had seen in his vision that they are actually the seven churches or they represent the light you know were to be a light to the world that that they represented the the seven churches so it's told it's spelled out for us right there well then in a very small number of cases when there is a symbol given to us the only clue to interpreting that symbol is the context in which it occurs and when this happens, when the only clue we have, when we can't go back to the Old Testament and find an example that came before, and when the context right there in the book of Revelation doesn't tell us, or we're not told somewhere else in the book of Revelation, and we don't have any clue at all what that symbol means other than its context, then that is a time when we will not be dogmatic about our interpretation and we'll say well maybe this is what it means according to the context this is probably the best guess so revelation essentially well it is because the lord told us is not a sealed book it is not a mystery that no one can understand that no one but god has the key to actually there are all kinds of keys that we can use to unlock the meaning of this book and they are all found either in the book itself or in other parts of scripture as well as in an understanding of the first century culture in which the book was written. So we won't need to become fanciful or speculative or spectacular in our imaginations as we expound upon this great section of God's holy word. Wherever God gives us a key, we're going to be try to be just as true to his word as we possibly can be. And where we might not have a definite key to the meaning of something, we're not going to be dogmatic. Because really, only the generation which sees these things being fulfilled will be the ones who can be dogmatic about it. And I don't plan to be around at that point. That gives you a hint where I think the rapture happens, okay? Now, a unique aspect of the book of Revelation is, and this is what I'm going to conclude with, is the amazing sevenness of the book. Seven 
is the biblical number for completion or fullness or perfection. You know, numbers in Scripture always have meaning, too. Everything in Scripture has meaning. Well, the number seven is a symbolic number, which means completeness, fullness, or perfection. And the number seven appears more in the book of Revelation than in any other book of the Scripture, any other of the 65 books of the Scripture. Revelation is the 66. And it occurs more times in Revelation than it does in all of the New Testament books put together. Now, some of the sevens which are mentioned in the book, this is not a complete list, but some of them are the seven churches, the seven ministries of the Holy Spirit, the seven candlesticks, the seven stars, the seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven thousands, seven heads, seven crowns, seven plagues, seven bowls, seven hills, seven kings, seven blessings, seven years of judgment, seven I am statements of Jesus Christ. What book does that remind us of? Book of John. Who wrote this? John. (laughs) Seven doxologies from heaven. Seven times that it is mentioned that Christ is coming again, that he's coming quickly, that he's coming soon. Seven times that John wrote, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit hath to say unto the churches, and on and on. There are more. That's not a complete list. Now, the use of the number seven can hardly be accidental. Actually, nothing in Scripture is accidental. Nothing in life is accidental. We have a sovereign God. But one reason for the um, amount of times that the number seven is used is probably because this, because Revelation completes and perfects the entire Bible. It's the last book, right? So it completes it and it perfects. Without this book, not only is God's divine library of 66 books incomplete and imperfect, but so too his divine program for this world would be incomplete and imperfect. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation ends, you know, with a strict warning. I think we looked at this. It ends with a strict warning against anyone who would attempt to take anything away from this book or add anything to it. You see, it is a perfect number seven. It is perfect. It is complete. Revelation has been ended. So I think that's one reason we find the number seven in the book so often. And then it's also interesting to realize that God began this whole thing. (laughs) We could say this whole mess, but this whole wonderful world, depends on your perspective, that we live in. He began it with the number seven. You know, we read in Genesis 2-3, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. So he began everything using the number seven, didn't he? God completed his mighty work of creation in the very first seven-day period of history. However, because of the entrance of sin and the subsequent curse into this world, He has ever since that time been accomplishing his most amazing work of all, and that is his work of redeeming his greatest creation, man. You know, the Old Testament is all about the preparation of the world for the coming Redeemer, the one who would pay the price for man's deliverance and his restoration to God. And then the New Testament gives us the details about the arrival of this Redeemer and the great price that he paid in shedding his own blood and giving his own life to take our place, to take sinful man's place. And then the new, and that's in the Gospels, which we just finished looking at. And then the New Testament goes on, of course, in the epistles, to discuss the establishment of this Redeemer's church under the doctrinal teaching of the apostles. And the book of Revelation, written by the last living apostle, culminates all apostolic teaching with the truths concerning the last days, which end after a seven-year 
period of great and horrible tribulation. And the book ends with God's work coming to completion and fullness and to perfection in the eternal state, in the new heaven and the new earth. So it began with seven, and it ends with seven, very appropriately. See, when God made it all, it was perfect. We are the ones who messed it up. When he has to come and, you know, take care of our mess, it will once again be perfect. It will be after seven years of his purification work of this earth. So the book of Revelation, or the apocalypse as it can be called, was written above all else... um, It was written in order to assure us that what God said is true. And what he promised he will do, he will do. He will accomplish. He will bring everything to completion in his perfect way according to his perfect will. And therefore, as we look at this book, if we disagree with what he's doing, if we say, oh, this is too harsh, this is too cruel, who are we to judge what he is doing? His way is perfect. That's what we have to be careful of. And when we see his judgments, let me assure you that over and over again, I remember this is something that caught my attention the last time we studied this book. In the midst of all his judgments, he is always merciful. He is always reaching out, trying to draw the individual person to himself. So even in the midst of judgment, he remembers his mercy. So Revelation is the literal and the real foretelling of future history just as surely as the book of Genesis is the literal and the real historical account of the beginnings of all things. And I hope that is the way you interpret scripture. It's the only logical way to look at it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the patience of these lovely women. And thank you that we are now through with all these introductions to your book. And next week we can begin to look at it verse by verse. And Father, we do claim that blessing that you have promised for us. Lord, go before us this day. Help each of us to take the name of Jesus with us wherever we go. We pray in Jesus' name.